one of these days when I get up here, I'm actually not going to have anything to say. I keep waiting for that day. I know it's going to come. But, uh, someday it's going to feel like I've said it all a million times and have absolutely nothing else to contribute. But tonight, that's not one of those nights. <laughs> a lot to say about this particular subject. Because to me, this subject that I'd like to talk about tonight is really the, uh, the essence of vipassana practice or insight meditation. And that, of course, is wisdom, you know, clear seeing. We've been spending a great deal of time and we'll continue to talk about mindfulness and how important it is. I mean, it's essential. You know, it's an essential practice for waking up. It's an essential practice for learning. Essential practice for discovering, learning, seeing, and wisdom, insight. As practice matures more and more, what we see is that the mindfulness practice blossoms. It gives birth to wisdom. And wisdom is a very practical quality of mind. There are many different aspects to wisdom. There are many different layers and different levels of wisdom. Sometimes the wisdom that arises in practice is kind of very microscopic. We see into the nature of something in a very detailed way, in a moment-to-moment way. Other times we see some pattern or habit of mind. We see it in a fresh way because of the mindfulness practice and something gets revealed that really changes our life. And sometimes wisdom develops and matures and we see the bigger picture, something that might not be so personal, but has more to do with the way things work in general, kind of laws or principles or the way things unfold in life. So tonight I'd like to talk about many different aspects of wisdom and how mindfulness practice matures into wisdom, really becomes We don't call it mindfulness meditation. We call it insight meditation because the mindfulness practice matures into wisdom. And that's why it's so useful and why it's so practical too uh, because wisdom has everything to do with cultivating discernment in whatever situation you're in. Right now, the situation we're in, the conditions we're in, is a retreat mode. Conditions have been created uh, to help support a continuity of mindfulness, recognizing that the more sustained the mindfulness can be, the steadier the attention. When we can develop the ability to be with ourselves and pay attention in a sustained way, then the mind begins to learn. The mind begins to see things in a very fresh and new way. And And that, of course, gives birth to insight. And so one aspect of wisdom, it's an aspect that 
I'm sure and quite convinced that everybody in this room has already discovered. And this wisdom develops and matures and deepens uh, as practice develops and deepens and matures. And that's the, the wisdom of valuing awareness. Maybe some of us take that for granted at this point in our practice, particularly if we've been practicing for a number of years. But valuing awareness is actually a form of wisdom. It's a form of wisdom. Not If you look around, not everybody's clamoring to come to IMS. Not everybody is clamoring to pursue a spiritual practice. Not everyone is willing to pay the dues. You know, not just in this kind of form of meditation, but any awareness practice, there are dues to pay. There are obstacles to overcome. Any awareness practice, any practice that facilitates awakening requires patience, perseverance, energy, determination, the ability not to give up, and to value it. To value this process of waking up is a form of wisdom. For me, that value of wisdom came about when I realized, uh, pretty young, in my early 20s, um, that thinking was not enough. You know, that there's a certain amount of wisdom in thinking, but, you know, ability to analyze the certain powers that we have uh, with thinking, we can analyze, we can figure out, we can problem solve. But what I realized quite early on was that it wasn't enough that I wasn't going to be able to just solely think my way out of it. And that's not rejecting thought. You know, it's not rejecting the usefulness of thought. Because wisdom has a lot to do with discernment and wise use of the thinking process. But if we rely solely on thinking, rather than awareness and thinking, bringing them together, then the thinking is very deeply conditioned. It's very limited. Our thinking process is conditioned from the past, from the kinds of things we've learned. And those, those things that we've learned kind of get in the way of insights until we get to know ourselves better. So valuing awareness. And as we practice, it happens to everyone really, everyone who practice awareness, they wouldn't continue At some point, one really has to begin to taste the fruit of awareness. And as we walk this particular path, uh, as awareness develops, we see it more and more as as it infiltrates our life. When we begin to see transformation and change in terms of the way we're relating to the situations that we encounter, or the way we relate to ourselves, or how we relate to the relationships in our lives, deepens. We, we get inspired as practice develops, and we value awareness more and more. Unfortunately, we can discover and cultivate awareness not just under these kind of conditions, but in everywhere, everywhere, wherever you go. Awareness is there. It's a matter of gaining access to it. And that's, of course, the power of mindfulness. Mindfulness and awareness. Mindfulness is a kind of awareness shares the same qualities, light, clarity, no preconceptions or judgments. 
just reflecting. So valuing awareness is one aspect of wisdom. Another way practice is so practical. You know, this wisdom practice is so useful. And when the mind gets more quiet, in, uh, after all our efforts, as the mind begins to settle and quiet down, one thing we begin to notice and we become aware of is how we're relating in the world. You know, what kind of actions? What's, what's our speech? You know, what's the, uh, what kind of speech do we engage in? We begin to pay attention to what we're doing out here. And one insight that arises as we sensitize ourselves to our actions and to our speech is that we begin to see that actions have consequences. The older I get, the more and more I see that. Like if you look at speech, for instance. Think of the consequences that come out of speech. I mean, it's remarkable how much trouble we get into through speech. Not, ju- not just us personally, but the world in general. How powerful world- words are. And how there's such a lack of awareness around our speech. How unconscious it is. How habitual it is. How conditioned it is. How reactive it can be. And one of the powers of mindfulness, how it facilitates wisdom, is that it protects us. They say mindfulness protects us and it protects the beings in our lives. That ability to be silently aware of your experience, to be aware of what what the consequences of your actions are, is a form of protection. It keeps us out of trouble. I know that's for a fact in my life, for sure. I also know Narayan's early years and mindfulness... (laughs) (laughs) Maddie, too. <laughs> Probably some of you. Uh, mindfulness keeps you out of a lot of trouble. You know, it really does. It prevents us from going down a lot of blind alleys. You know, a lot of places that are very di- difficult to dig your way out of. Sometimes we rely on fear to do that, but fear is not so reliable sometimes. You know, it's so unconscious often. It's not a reliable guide. Wisdom is so much more reliable. Clear seeing, being conscious rather than unconscious. You can find a real refuge and have a sense of protectedness within that space. You know, seeing the wisdom of restraint, which plays into this one. Realizing when you feel like saying something about somebody else, you know, and you know it's gossip, you know it's kind of the classic Buddhist terminology, slanderous or negative or backbiting. Those are all, of course, forms of unwise speech. Um, we can, you, if you're mindful, you can see you know, how harmful that can be. You don't need to go there. And the wisdom or restraint and the wisdom that comes out of mindfulness practice is that there's often, there can be a pause before we speak. It doesn't cut out, in a sense, spontaneity but there's a silence that accompanies our speech um, as we develop more mindfulness and as we develop wisdom. So there can be an awareness of that intentionality that arises before we speak. It's very inspiring when we become aware of our intentions. Very slippery and subtle, too. 
And then the wisdom or restraint is choosing not to do it. It's not repressing. You know, the wisdom or restraint is not kind of repressing or self-consciousness or, or depriving yourself of something or judging the impulse even. That's not restraint. Restraint is just choosing the wise way to go, to just not do it. The, ups, the wisdom of generosity, the wisdom of different kinds of practices that we're cultivating, all of us are cultivating here. The wisdom of generosity or metta. All of these qualities shape. Shape our response to life, shape our response to ourselves, shape our response to the relationships that we find ourselves in. I think one of the most powerful areas of wisdom or insight um, that retreats, that these particular conditions offer us, because these conditions in many ways, I won't call them artificial, I use that word sometimes because it's not really artificial, but let's just say unusual conditions. Most of our lives do not look like this on a day-to-day basis, and you're probably very happy about that. Um, maybe you're not. Uh, but your life in a few days down the road certainly not going to look like this. Certainly not going to be structured. Um, it's going to be considerably different, a lot more complex. But what retreats offer is this ability to pay attention more closely you know, to both the body and the mind. Pay attention to your actions and to pay attention to your body. To settle into the here and now. That emphasis on being in the present. It's so valuable. And as we become more present, of course, what we discover is how non-present we are. That we're not very present. That we're constantly thinking about the future or getting lost in the past. And what we begin to discover in this situation that we're in here, with this mindfulness practice, is that we begin to uncover the unconscious. We begin to kind of take the lid off of the unconscious mind and we start becoming much more conscious. And what we become conscious of is we become conscious of the habits of mind and just how incredibly powerful they are. How incredibly powerful and how, how habitual our minds are. And a lot of us have, you know, I mean, when we talk about a path of awareness, it's a journey that each one of us takes and what we encounter along the way. You know, it's often quite different. I mean, people have different karma. People have different experiences, different conditions. Um, Even on retreat, different conditions in the body, different conditions in the mind. You know, and certainly we're very aware of the fact that that people have different conditions in their lives outside of a retreat center. Uh, so the journey is, you know, it's personal in that way. 
has everything to do um, with where you've come from, and what you've brought into this retreat. And so we encounter that conditioning, and all of us have somewhat different conditioning. But there are certainly some very common, you might say almost universal, kinds of conditioning that we're all subject to. And we be, as we begin to wake up, as the mind gets quieter, as it develops this ability to pay attention to the experience rather than getting lost in the experience. Of course, one of the habits of mind that we begin to see is that, and this is something to keep looking at, is that when we encounter something pleasant, you know, whether it's a body sensation, you know, whether it's a state of mind like joy or contentment, peace, or concentration, whether it's a particular condition in the environment, like sun coming out or cool breeze or lunchtime, conditions in the building, food, going to bed at night. When we encounter pleasant conditions, the mind habitually tends to grasp on and cling to that particular experience. And that's something that we're not so aware of. We don't necessarily see it as clearly sometimes in our everyday life. You know, until we build up a certain level of mindfulness. We can build that level of mindfulness certainly in our life outside of a retreat center. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the retreat. But this is a situation where there's so much support for mindfulness, we can really begin to get to know that grasping mind, the mind that's clinging. And we can begin to see, you know, what's a pleasant experience? What's pleasant to us? What's pleasant to you may not be pleasant to somebody else. It's very subjective, actually. Same thing with painful experiences. There's a strong habit of mind that when we encounter something unpleasant, we push it away. We have aversion to it. As we develop this practice, as practice matures, we undergo a process called self-knowing. I call self-knowing anyway. Which is getting to know oneself. Beginning to get to know in a very intimate and non-judging way what those habits are. What do we do when we encounter a particular condition of mind? You know, how do we react? How do we respond? You know, what happens when we oversleep? and we miss a bell, or we make a mistake, or we spill something in the dining room. Something happens that, that kind of knocks us out of balance. What, are the, what conditions, what do, how do we relate to different situations that we encounter? And oftentimes, people, especially I think somebody who might be new to the practice, it might sound a little like navel-gazing, like you're always watching just yourself. And it's not that at all. What you're doing is you're being present. We're being present, which means we're aware of the conditions that we're in. We're very connected to what's happening. But within that space of awareness, we're also very aware of how we're responding to those conditions. And that's crucial information. That's a crucial area to investigate and explore because that's the area that determines whether we suffer in the face of those conditions whether we suffer or whether we discover freedom. Depends on our awareness of how we're relating to things. 
Because if we're not aware of how we're relating to things, what that means is that we're relating in an unconscious way. And so the tendency of mind is to keep repeating as long as we're unconscious. And even though for many of us, I've certainly had this experience myself, it can be extremely discouraging to see how habitual the mind can be and how it can play over the same record over and over again. Or you can, one can c- continue to have the same reaction over and over again. And on one hand, it can be discouraging, but the key is to realize that this is the process of waking up. We're engaging in that process of waking up. And what that means for all of us is to wake up to the habits of mind. Because every moment that we become aware of an habitual reaction to something, that habitual reaction is changing. We're transforming our consciousness through that awareness. That's the power of awareness. That that reaction is no longer in the field of unconsciousness. So we don't keep reinforcing it. We don't keep reinforcing it. And again, another power of mindfulness is that it facilitates this deconditioning process. It deconditions the mind so that the mind isn't always responding from a conditioned place. It doesn't have to always be responding in that very habitual way. But the door out of habit, the door towards letting go and discovering more freedom so that we can respond with creativity, with some freedom, even with some humor sometimes. To have that space in the mind, it requires being aware of those habits. Disempowers that habitual mind. But it takes time. It's usually a gradual process for most of us because the habits are so strong and we've been practicing them from really early on. And so that's why we often talk about patience because these habits don't change overnight. But slowly but surely, as we let go of habit, what we discover is space in the mind. Silence. And in that silence, there's clear seeing. There's clear seeing. So this process of self-knowing is to begin to get to know what those habits or patterns you know, we're, most of us are, are subject to certain patterns you know, that keep repeating themselves over and over again. But again, seeing those patterns, one should be inspired when one begins to see these patterns because that's the way out. It means that we're, we're moving in the right direction. You know, we're moving towards wisdom and freedom. It just one has to also have the wisdom to understand that it's a gradual unfolding and one needs to persevere and not give up not let those habits of mind defeat one not let those habits of mind undermine us by giving them more power by reacting against them or judging them self-condemning or self-criticizing ourselves that only reinforces and strengthens the habits or even thinking about them or analyzing them or figuring them out That doesn't help often either. One can know exactly why one is reacting in a certain way. 
but we just keep doing it. It doesn't free us. It's not enough. It's not enough. So getting to know oneself in a very intimate way. The practice is not about learning how to observe yourself from a distance, you know, observing relationships from a distance. Not at all. Couldn't be, the, couldn't be more different. It's much more about developing an intimacy with your life and uh, developing the capacity to be intimate with others, to feel very present in your life, um, to experience life as rich, even the difficult times, even the difficult conditions are incredibly rich. One's practice develops. There's so much that one can learn. There's so many places where we can let go of suffering when we encounter even difficult conditions. You know, sometimes difficult conditions facilitate much deeper insights and wisdom than when all the conditions around us are just supporting us. Because wisdom doesn't depend on a particular set of conditions. That's why it's so useful. That's why it's so practical. That's why it's so valuable. Because wisdom is something that we can discover wherever we are. And it's always handy. Always handy. So as more space kind of creeps into the mind, as the mind begins to relax and not cling and grasp and react so unconsciously. But we begin to, you know, we're beginning to see how the mind works. We're beginning to see how the body works. Um, other insights arise. Insight begins to deepen, broaden. Insights become more inclusive. It's not just a personal journey. Uh, but we begin to see how things work. And we can begin to see how things work, not just for ourselves, but for other beings. And that's extremely useful. That's why when we practice, we're not just practicing for ourselves. When we practice wisdom, we're not just benefiting ourselves. When we practice compassion, we're certainly not just benefiting ourselves. When we wake up, we can become a resource to others. When we develop insight into the nature of suffering, not just our own personal suffering, but how suffering works and how it unfolds, we begin to understand and have more compassion for other people's suffering. And, you know, this is inevitable. As we develop more wisdom and compassion around our own suffering, we overcome a sense of separation with others. We become much more sensitive and wise when we need to respond to other people's suffering. Another insight that arises in practice is the mind gets quieter as it pays attention in a more sustained and open-hearted way. It doesn't get so caught up in each moment or each mental state or each physical uh, sensation that we have or each unpleasant or pleasant condition in our environment. When we don't get so caught up in all of that, you know, pushing or pulling or rejecting or clinging, uh, when the mind starts relaxing and becoming a little bit more balanced, it begins to see some underlying principles, some things that are uh, that we miss because uh, of not having uh, that kind of a expansive perspective that can come out of sustained attention rather than just momentary attention. 
but one insight that we begin to see, and the Buddha talked a great deal, of course, about this for a number of reasons, but for one reason is it's the way things are. Uh, so that's important. To begin to see things clearly means to see things as they are. And of course, what I'm speaking about is the lack, the law of impermanence. We can begin to see the changing nature of our experience. And in sitting meditation, in formal practice, and on retreats, you know, sometimes we can have that insight in a you know, very clear way. Sometimes, as I said earlier, that it can be kind of microscopic. We can notice subtle changes in the breathing, subtle changes in body sensations, subtle changes in the environment. Different mind states have different kinds of energy uh, fluctuating. Uh, it's moving. It's changing. Um, and so we begin to develop insight uh, into this body-mind process, and we begin to see that it's a process, that the body is not solid and that the mind is not solid. And even though we know this intellectually, you could talk to just about anybody walking off the street, and they would say, yeah, my body's changing, uh, my mind changes too. Um, but it's different when you see it directly, when you see it in a sustained way, when you can begin to absorb that truth, it has a tremendous transformation of the mind you know, when we can begin to see impermanence, not just on a microscopic level, but from moment to moment in whatever situation we find ourselves in. In the Thai forest tradition, of course, everywhere in Buddhism they talk about impermanence and, and that kind of why it's so essential to, to get in touch with that fact. Um, they often encourage a practice where one observes the nature. You know, one observes the creatures in the forest. One observes nature, how it's expressing itself from moment to moment, from day to day. And, and I th- my sense of things is the reason they do that is because it gives insight into this, into impermanence. We can, when we look around at nature, like if we go out again tonight um, and we look at the sky, it's not going to be the same sky. Some of you were out last night. The moon has changed. The sky has changed. The temperature has changed. You know, just taking a look at the world around us and the law of impermanence is right there, right in our face. It's undeniable, that fact of impermanence. I was thinking tonight, we were talking, about, we were talking earlier today about all this technology stuff that's going on how obsessive our culture is. And I remember all the stuff around the iPhones. And it really sounded like, I think the nickname was the Christ phone, I think, for that, uh, because it was being treated like the second coming of Christ. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it was the biggest news everywhere you turned. The iPhone, the iPhone, the iPhone, the iPhone. And I think I look older than I actually am I haven't been around that long, but when I was a child, all we had was black and white TV, you know, just in three channels. And that just happened, actually, not, not long after you know, I was born, or maybe just before I was born. I'm not sure. I was born in the early 50s. I think TV was probably right around that time. Uh, so it was a companion I grew up with. But, you know, it was mesmerizing, that technology. But just look at where we have come. 
in what I consider a relatively short period of time. Uh, things change, and they change quickly. Uh, that's the way it is. And somehow the challenge in life you know, is how to respond to that. How do we respond to that fact of change? To me, it's one of the greatest challenges that everybody in this room, everybody on this planet faces is that life is not in our control. It's changing, just like nature, just like the environment that we're living in. We don't ultimately get to call the shots. And we can see that over and over and over again. So wisdom of course, is seeing the law of impermanence. But it's also about learning how to relate to that fact. How to live and experience peace without living in denial of change. How to live in the face of change without fear. Or trying to cultivate indifference. Trying to distance ourselves or detach ourselves from that particular fact. How to keep our hearts open when we know everything is changing. Well, the way we do that in this particular practice is to take a look at the changing nature of the conditions that we experience, see it. Make room for that fact that it's changing. And not and learn not to grasp on. Not to grasp on to those impermanent changing experiences. Not to hold on, hoping that that changing experience will provide lasting happiness. Conditions are important in one's life. And sometimes Buddhism is interpreted as cultivating an indifference to conditions. And it's not really true. It's so important for you to take care of yourself. And if you don't know how to learn how to take care of yourself, it's really crucial to do that. We're never going to be a resource to others unless we know how to take care of ourselves. And that often means taking care of the conditions in your life. You know, making sure your relationships are in pretty good shape. You know, working on things, developing things, resolving issues. But at the same time, the conditions, you know, they're not going to be able to provide us with that deep, 
inner peace that's unconditional. That, that kind of peace can only be discovered within. And the confidence and the faith that comes out of practice comes out of when we develop an ability to respond to the changing conditions in our life with some degree of wisdom, clarity, and compassion. It's such a invaluable skill to have in one's life, to learn how to do that. And then confidence grows. We realize we can be in difficult situations. We can confront difficult emotions or difficult mind states and that we don't get so overwhelmed by them. We begin to develop more equanimity. There's kind of inner balance of mind and inner balance of heart that has nothing to do with being indifferent. Equanimity is open-hearted attention but not being thrown around by the experience, being able to hold it without reacting for or against. It's not indifference because we're being intimate, close, we're being responsive, we feel the pain, we feel the pleasure, but we're not pushed around by it. We're not caught by it. The mind is balanced. And in that poise, in that poise, wisdom comes out of that poise that inner poise. It's not detachment. It's not distance from the experience. We're not protecting ourselves in practice that way. Not protecting by defending ourselves. But more about opening and learning how to deal and respond without so much fear. So seeing this law of impermanence in a very clear way, in a a sustained way, the fruit of that, of course, is wisdom. And and another aspect of wisdom is that we we develop this ability. This is true for all, all students that have been practicing for a while. This is one of those inevitable insights that happens as practice matures and deepens, no matter what our history is, no matter what our individual conditioning is or challenges we face. Um, One of the insights that develops over time is something we actually learn out of paying attention to our experiences, and it's hard-earned, so we get to know it uh, very clearly. Uh, We begin to learn not to identify so much with the experiences that we're having. When we're in a difficult state of mind, Gradually and slowly, because we've paid attention to it, we've gotten to know it, we've seen it's coming and going. We know it arises under certain conditions. We know that habit of mind. We know it has a certain energy. We know it expresses itself in certain ways, down or up or around, in or out. We get to know that space, that mind state, and we don't claim it so much. The mind just doesn't hook onto it and say, that's who I am. You know, I'm that angry person. I'm that judgmental person. I'm that fearful person. Because one realizes that sometimes it feels that way. 
Sometimes we're angry, sometimes we're fearful, sometimes we're judgmental. But those, those things come and go. Those states of mind come and go. There's no need. It's extra. Extra suffering to claim that particular state of mind is you or me or mine. It's a thought about the experience that makes that claim. It's delusion. It's confusion in the mind. It's taking something that's nature. Remember, we are part of nature. We're not separate. It's taking something that's nature and claiming it as me. And in that claiming, what we're actually, what's implied in that is that we're separate from nature. But somehow, we're not made up of all these changing conditions. It's amazing that humans can be so deluded in thinking that they're, we're actually separate. There's nature around us. Everything's changing but us. You know, we're still that same solid being. What, that we were born with? Or, you know, what is it? You know, we know, we all know that we've been changing. But there's this misunderstanding that's deeply conditioned in the brain, in our nervous system, that somehow experiences things and makes claims that I'm this person, I'm that person, I'm that person. And the Buddha talked a lot about the kinds of things that we claim to be me or my. And the Buddha was amazing because he created these, this framework that's remarkable. And, and uh, the things that we claim, the different aspects of changing experiences, these interrelated changing experiences that we tend to identify with. And I'll just go through the list very briefly. Uh, the five, what, they, what, what Buddhism is called the five adri- ag- <clears throat> aggregates, it's always hard, of clinging. The five skandhas, that's so much easier. In this case, Pali is actually a lot easier than the English for me. Five skandhas. In the first skanda is material form. And oftentimes that's associated with the body. Just think about the level of identification uh, uh, that we all have when it comes to our bodies, how we claim them as me or mine. Again, not claiming it as me or mine or seeing the impermanent nature of the body doesn't mean you don't take care of it. Of course you do. But it's necessary to see the reality of the body, which is it's changing. It's changing. Second is feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. My heavens, there are just so many pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings during a day. It's, there's countless feelings, and they're continually changing. And we sometimes claim the pleasant ones. Sometimes we t- take responsibility or claim or identify with the unpleasant ones. It's very interesting to see. We can have pain in our bodies and claim it as me. You know, like, that's mine, that's who I am. That kind of thing. And, and that adds a whole layer of suffering onto the physical pain itself. And it often gets in the way of taking care of oneself. It often gets in the way of responding wisely to the body. You know, seeing the impermanent nature of the body doesn't mean you treat it badly or unwisely. No. No, in fact, you value it. Because that body isn't going to be around forever. So appreciate what an incredible vehicle it is for us. Material form, feelings, perception. Again, the older I get, the more I see perception as conditioned. Conditioned by our, our values, conditioned by past history, conditioned by memory. We, you know, so often, 
you know, very common perception. Somebody might, uh, you know, on a retreat, this happens very often in retreats, and you'll see, you might discover this at the end of the retreat, where you have some clear perception of what somebody's about, and you've already figured out what they do professionally, uh, how they got here, uh, that it's not the right practice for them, uh, you know, that, that, that they're w- way out of their league being here. Uh, and you know, you, you're sure you'll never see them again on another retreat. And you have all sorts of ideas. They eat too much, or they've you know, they got this problem or that problem, or whatever it might be. And we, perceive, we literally perceive and experience those folks just like that. And then, someday you will be opening your mouth and talking. And that's only really a few days away. But when you start talking, it's, you know, one can just see that perception evaporate. Just in seconds, all of a sudden you see the eyes and you see the face and there's a sense of not that separation. That we're the same. That there's something, you know, love. Or there's some connection there um, that you see, uh, that you open to. And we can see how limited our perceptions are and how conditioned they are. And that they change. So, but we tend to claim and identify and value our perception. We take it as truth. Big mistake. Fourth is mental formations, thoughts, emotions. We really claim those. Uh, those are my. That's me. That's my anger, my sadness, my grief, my desire. And the fifth, and of course we know, we're starting to see this right. And I'm sure all of us are beginning to see that really things are coming and going a lot. Even sleepiness comes and goes, or it changes anyways. It doesn't stay at the same, same intensity. And then fifth is consciousness, or the knowing quality of mind. And again, uh, we can see that in the observer. The observer is kind of an expression within consciousness. Um, and that begins to change. The observer begins to change. The knowing aspect of the mind begins to change. Knowing is often colored by our conditioning. The knowing of ourselves, knowing of experience changes also. And those are the five skandhas. And so what we see in that is that we claim them. We tend to identify. This is what the Buddha said anyways. This is the discovery he made uh, when he looked at his own mind. Is that he could see that by identifying with those uh, changing processes, um, it created suffering in the mind. It, 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 by identifying, it knocks us out of harmony with nature. We, we create that sense of separation from ourselves and nature, separation from each other. Um, if one takes a look at one's um, thoughts, uh, one of the main insights that one can discover is just how self-referential our thinking is. Have you ever noticed that? How so many of our thoughts are about me? Uh, Yeah, a lot. A lot of that going on. A lot of that going on. That incredible obsession about our happiness, our peace, our comfort, our practice, our retreat, my room. My cushion, my place in the hall, my chair that I go to when I get up from the cushion. Sure. A lot of a lot of claiming, a lot of self. 
And so, finally, um, I think one of the great fruits of wisdom in beginning to dissolve this sense of a solid self is again this inner space and relaxation and balance in the mind. And that allows us to genuinely respond in a very natural way with compassion. I'm sure everybody in this room values compassion. Compassion comes out of that awareness that we're all in this together. Um, And that awareness really does dissolve and break down the sense of separate self. So let's just sit for a minute. Okay, so thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.